an ACES training and I reached out to, to Mindy and asked her if she would, she would do it and she agreed and we are so grateful. Um, again, chat with us in the chat, submit questions through the Q&A. We're thrilled to offer this to you today. Mindy, thank you so much for teaching and get away. Hey, hello everyone. Good morning. Let's see, I've been practicing. Um, I don't want to raise my hands. No. <laughs> to share you can my do it. You screen. can do it. We practiced. <laughs> uh, uh, give me a minute. Okay. So share. There you go. All right. And then I have to go. Okay. Renee, do I need to? Now click display settings again and swap. There you go. You're okay. set. Yep. Perfect. Go for I it. I am set. So good morning, everyone. Um, as indicated uh, in the overview of the training through the awesome Foster Source Learning Online Platform, I am a licensed clinical social worker here in Colorado. I started my career in child protective services back in 2009, and I started out uh, as an intake social caseworker and then ongoing social caseworker back to intake, eventually ending up in uh, as a supervisor. Um, I've worked in four different counties, so I'm pretty, I would say, well-versed in the child protection um, you know, system within Colorado, the Metro Denver area. So I was in Jefferson County, Broomfield, Arapahoe, and uh, Adams. And then um, I left the field in 2019. Currently, I have my own private practice. Um, at this time, I provide therapy to older adults and also to Asian American children and families, um, as there's a huge uh, need for that right now. Um, my goal, though, by the end of the year is that I will probably completely transition my private practice to only conducting case consultation related to child protection matters. Um, and that is because I am very, very busy. Uh, I'm an investigator for a nonprofit that investigate all sexual misconduct within the US Olympic and Paralympic movement. And so um, that's uh, where I do, I spend a lot of time in. And so that's why I wanna kind of reorganize my private practice. Um, uh, Mindy, let me ask yes. you, this is a great opportunity since you've worked for so many counties. What I've seen is that every county has a different culture it feels like did you experience that as not not that any are better or worse but there's just a different way of processing child welfare I feel like in each county did you experience that too I did and when I started in 2009 was when I don't know how much you all are aware of differential response um and so in Differential response started out the research out in Australia, a lot of research in, in Minnesota. And so Jefferson County and Arapahoe County, and I want, I want to say Larimer, um, and I believe a, a few other counties um, began using differential response, which is basically a you go in and instead of doing as an intake caseworker, instead of going in just to assess for safety and, and walking out, it was more about going in to partner with families and then assessing what can you do to support that family. So more about preventative work. And so Arapahoe County and Jefferson County, and at the time in 2009, it was a pilot program. And so not even today, um, not all the counties are practicing that. And so you know, each county has their own little um, best practice, what they use. 
And so, yes, very different um, in the way they approach with families from, from the beginning, I would say. However, yeah. yeah. And now that uh, this federal legislation, Families First, is coming into into law, that's exactly what that does, right? Is is pours a lot more services on the front end of a case. But I digress. I apologize. Keep keep, going. I thought that was interesting. It is. And, and, and the great thing is that there's more funding. So for like counties like Jefferson County, Arapahoe, there's more funding to it. And I know that with Adams County, they created a, their own little team, right, to, 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 um, to help with that, to have allocated money to help with preventative services. So, yeah. Um, all right. So we'll kind of jump right in and we will be talking about um, Adverse Childhood Experiences, um, also known as ACE or ACEs. And so, um, as you can see, ACEs is defined as different forms of abuse and neglect and household dysfunction occurring before the age of 18. Um, The subset childhood conditions are consistently associated with like many long-term negative effects, both behaviorally problems such as substance disorder, depression, physical health problems, such as heart disease, you know, leading to to death. Um, And this is a a quote that I found um, that I resonated with me, I think, especially as we're learning um, about ACEs. So really ACEs is, you know, when when something happens in infancy, um, between infancy and adulthood that creates a, a lifetime of addictions, abuse and mental health um, problems. Well, and that's why I think this this class is so important is these these studies have shown the effect that ACEs have on people through their lifetime. Um, And but these are things that happened in their childhood. And a lot of times in child welfare, we hear things like, well, they were so young, there's no way they remember that, or they're still affected by that. And all of these ACEs studies basically disprove that. In fact, it does change. It changes our, their body. It changes, sometimes it even rewrites their DNA. And it does cause it to be something that affects them for a lifetime. Right. It, it basically, I mean, you talk about DNA genetically, it, it just, it changes it and it kind of seals it for them and it impacts and shapes who they are as they become adults, right? Um, organically. And that's, that's, that's the thing is that like, you talk about like heart disease, you talk about like cancer. Those are, those are things that, you know, it, it happens to these kids that experience these adversities at such a young age. Um, and I know that like, Renee and I talk a lot. And I recalled when I was a caseworker, I worked with a very young child who was exposed to a lot of you know, um, domestic violence. Um, and like at age, like six months, you know, and I would supervise these visits and, and this, this little child who was six months, um, was always triggered whenever, um, the father came in to visit. And, and that to me was, and that child was removed from the home at about like age two months. And so to see how young a child is and how it has impacted that child within the first two months of life and into developing a lot of these challenges, like the inability to, 
to really self-soothe, um, to sleep, you know, being irritable. And so it's knowing about ACEs is incredibly important and how we can prevent some of the outcomes that this study shows. And so it leads us right into, you know, the study of, of um, ACE, which is between 1995 and 1997, the CDC and Kaiser Permanente discover an exposure that dramatically increases like the risk um, of, of, of death, you know, for, for, and of other kinds of, I would say adversity such as, you know, medical conditions, mental health, you know, challenges, behavior challenges. Um, and so the ACE study is one of the, the largest scientific research studies of its kind. It has over 17,000, mostly middle income Americans participating. So that's where I kind of want us to focus is that this wasn't a study that was done, you know, in an area where it was, you know, um, you're talking about like, oh, these are, these are people from low income area, or these are people from a certain, you know, um, area. No, this was mostly, again, middle income Americans. And I think about the next slide will show about 74% of them um, were white. And so um, the, the focus was to analyze the relationship correlation between childhood trauma and the risk for physical and mental illness in adulthood. And over the course of a decade, the results demonstrated a strong graded relationship between the level of traumatic stress in childhood and poor, again, physical, mental, and behavior outcomes later in life. And so um, the data collected from the ACE study revealed that there is a staggering proof of health social and economic risk that results from childhood trauma. And a finding from the initial ACE study have been replicated in 21 states and suggests that certain experiences are major risk for the leading causes of illness and death, as well as poor quality of life in the United States. And so, as you can see, this is a study that was done in the mid nineties, um, was replicated and continued to produce the same results. Um, I've spoken to you know, a few of friends of mine that have been in child protection for very long times to also include doctors and physicians. Um, and they talk a lot about um, this study in and itself and using it to really help assess and set up appropriate preventative services um, for kids that, um, and we'll talk more about the ACE score that has a high, you know, A score. Yeah, I think a lot of, if not all of our kids in care will have a significant ACEs score. Um, somebody says, that's why I want my entire home to have a spirit of peace, organization, love and acceptance. I want home to be a healing place. And that's kind of what we're called to do as foster parents. Mm -hmm. And it, as it sounds wonderful, but it's challenging, right? Because we're working with sometimes prenatal trauma. But I think the goal is recognizing it. And then, as you said, learning how to best heal that can prevent some of these outcomes that the studies have shown. Yes. And you can, as foster parents, you can. The brain is very malleable. It changes. Um, and so research has shown that there are things that you can do that can help. Again, you talk about that DNA, right? You can rewrite and help that DNA change. Um, 
And so this was just the participants, which again, it goes back to, like I said, I think 17,000 from middle class. And if you look at the, the, the demographic here, the race, you know, 74% were, were white. And so oftentimes when we um, talk about ACEs or when we talk about childhood trauma, right? Like we tend to think, oh, you know, these are kids from, you know, these uh, families or, or, you know, from this area or, or whatnot, but really it impacts us all. Um, and then like Renee say, especially those kids are, are in care. Um, you know, you talk about childhood uh, trauma, the experiences that they've had. And so this is just kind of a demographic about most of them. And then you can kind of see, I mean, if you look at it, 39.3% of them were in college. So, right. So we think about the kids that we're working with, the kids are coming into care and we think about their parents and, and their history, you know, where do they fall on this? Um, so what are ACEs, uh, childhood experiences and these adversities? So you talk about parental death and so a parent dying, parental illnesses, um, chronically depressed, mentally ill, suicidal, sibling death, parental alcohol disorder, parental substance disorder, exposure to domestic violence, family poverty, um, a parent being incarcerated, right? Even parents divorcing, um, you have recurrent, uh, recurrent physical abuse, emotional abuse, contact sexual abuse, neglect, you know, emotional and physical neglect. Those are two huge ones. Even, you know, physical and verbal bullying um, and exposure community to community violence, criminal behaviors. And so these are all um, adverse childhood experiences that this study looked at. Um, and well, as and if you look no. at the list, sorry, Mindy, if you look mm -hmm. at the list, these are not things that just kids who have been pulled into care are experiencing, right? We all know we have trauma from our childhoods. Everybody does. And we all have probably several of these. Um, someone was asking, what about kids then who do not end up coming into care? Are they potentially even worse off? Yes and no. Um, right, because I think those kids that don't come into care, I know that a lot of professionals, so even though, because when, when I think of coming into here, care, right, uh, I'm assuming we're talking about the platform of foster care. And so you have a lot of physicians, you have a lot of teachers, right, even teachers that are, um, have been educated in adverse childhood experiences and how that impacts them, like in the social environment and in a school environment. And so I think yes, and that yes, they, if they've been exposed to this, but, it, but, but like I said, I, I don't think, only, I think there are so many helping professionals and maybe this is me just being very optimistic is that um, people are being, we are being trained, like mental health is now at the forefront within this country. Prior to this, it was a taboo, right? You don't talk about things like that. And I hope that through these trainings that, um, that we're, we're putting on for foster parents, for teachers, for therapists, for doctors, um, even like I think about like guardian ad litems that I talked to you about these um, studies is that people are recognizing it. And, and at the end of my PowerPoint, um, I'll talk a lot about resources. And so it, my hope is that as we, know, we see these kids and we learn about them, 
is that we, we understand how it can shape them as adult and that we can come in to provide in preventative care and services resources. Um, sure. And something that really like, like, you know, that I'm thinking about right now is like, like currently right now, right, in current events here in the United States, like you talk about exposure to community violence, you talk about a lot of things. So some of that, that that's even, you know, an mm-hmm. adverse childhood experience or even the pandemic. The pandemic, right? for yes. sure. Yes. <laughs> even the pandemic, like I don't never have we seen like, like my child hasn't been in school for an entire year. And what is that impact going to be on him? And we don't even know right now what, what that's going to look like for him socially, right, education, academically. Um, And so these are the ACEs. And so the available trend data on ACEs from the 20th century show like multi-decades declines in parental death, right? Um, We're we're living longer now, parental illness, siblings' death, and poverty. However, the trend data on ACEs from the 21st century show an increase in parental divorce parental substance and alcohol disorder and parental incarceration. Um, And so we can kind of look at, you know, from the 20th century to the 21st century, although a lot of those ACEs have declined, what we see, and I'm sure what U.S. foster parents see is an increase in, again, parental divorce, parental substance, um, and alcohol disorder. Anything else that you guys are, you know, as foster parents are seeing, as a trend, you know, as you're um, receiving, you know, children come into your care. Well, yeah, feel free to put things in the chat, guys. Um, from I would say mental health for sure, right? And we're also seeing a lot of these parents were in care, right? So it's becoming cyclical. So it, I love that we have now this bigger focus on, on mental health, because I think that's one of our best chances to actually break this cycle. Absolutely. And I think the whole intergenerational, you know, we talk a lot about intergenerational poverty. I also stress a lot about intergenerational domestic violence and also, you know, um, parents being in care and in their children in care. And often when I was a caseworker and even supervisor and learning about the social history of these families is you can really see that like, okay, it was with mom and grandma and great grandma. And so how do we right come in as helping people um, stop this, the cycle of, yeah. of, you know, these, these kids coming in and then their kids. Um, yeah, so, somebody yeah. said the effect that electronics have had on this generation. I agree that will potentially probably add it to the ACEs list. Absolutely. I mean, right now, right? Like within it, like these kids, like my kid is seven. And, you know, um, I'm going to admit like he's on, like he knows how to navigate my iPad much better than I do. Or even like learning a new game. Like I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And within an hour, like my son can pick it right up and know what to do. And so it's so easy for them to pick up an electronic device and have access to, to the, to that, you know, technology world, right. Where everything is out there. Yeah. All right. And so adverse childhood experiences. So questions in the ACE study has 10 categories that they look at. So they look at physical abuse, um, emotional 
abuse, sexual abuse, under abuse, and for neglect, you know, physical and emotional, and then household dysfunction. So they're looking at mental illnesses, they're looking at the mother being, you know, was it treated violently, separation or divorce, incarceration, substance disorders. And so when you, um, the ACE study is looking at, like, for example, for physical abuse, they're asking questions, you know, uh, with physical abuse, was it sometimes, often, or very often, you know, pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at you, or ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured? Um, some of the things that are asking about the emotional um, neglect piece of it is, you know, um, participants were asked whether family made them feel special, loved, and if their family was a source of strength, support, and protection. Um, what I found where it talked about household dysfunction, right, mother treated violently, and asked, like, was your mother or stepmother was sometimes, often, or very often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her, or sometimes, um, often, or very often kicked, bitten, hit. Um, and, and I would say, as a as a caseworker, you know, having been in child protection for a good almost 10 years, is that um, domestic violence is so prevalent um, in these child's life um, that go into foster care. And so that's yeah. something that I saw that was so prevalent. I, I almost want to even jump as high as say about 90% of the, the families that I've met um, yeah. domestic violence. Do you know, Mindy, if any of these 10 categories, do they all score equally as far as their effect on a child as an ACE or are some weighed more heavily? No. So they all get assigned one point. So if you say yes to mother treated violently, that's one point. And so your ACE score can be anywhere from one to 10. I wonder what the average American ACE score is. I think, because I, I was think doing I, a I, little research. Go ahead. I feel, yeah, I feel like I've read if like you have a score of like four or more, your your rates of you know early death and disease mm -hmm. and all of that are just so much higher. Yeah, and I I was doing when I did this PowerPoint, I did some research on it, and I I want to say I read it, and I want to say it was like around two to three. It wasn't four. Um, but that is something that I, I'll be more than happy to, um, to, to look more into. And I'll let you know, Renee, and you can send that to the foster parents. Well, I just remember having kids in care and I would count up their aces and they were just always so, so high. Yes. You know, it just. And we're going to go into, into their ACEs score because it's going to be, um, a predetermination of what their future could be like if there is no intervention, um, which can, can be like, you know, very worrisome, very scary for them. Um, and so I wanted to include a copy of the ACE uh, childhood questionnaire. Um, and so as you can see, it's like, you know, while you were growing up during your first 18 years of life, and then it asks you the question, if you, if you say yes, then you get, you get a score of one point. And so those are the 10 categories that we went over. Um, and so you can see number 10, did a household member go to prison? Yes or no. And then it, you just add up the numbers of yes, and it gives you your score one through 10. Hey, can somebody from my team Google this quick and we can post a link to it in the chat? 
And this is something for you as foster parents. I mean, obviously when these kids come in, you don't want to sit there and like interview them and be like, Hey, let's, let's figure out what your ACE score is. Because I will tell you, um, on the front end, as a caseworker, we don't do this, but this would have been so important for us through when we were gathering social history through our assessment prior to removing a child to learn about some of these things, especially kids that we place into foster care, right? Like, wouldn't it be great to um, have reviewed this and know some of this? Because like, if I'm looking at a lot of this, we can answer them as caseworkers and we can provide this and let the foster parent know. And so I know that when I left at least back in 2019, no one was doing this in the four counties that I worked in. And so you as foster parents, you can definitely find this resource. um, And as you get to know your foster child within that first, you know, one to two weeks, you can kind of look at some of this and kind of, you know, ask, you know, not directly about it, but open-ended questions about, you know, their parents, their life at home. And obviously these are for kids that are verbal, but you can kind of look at it and, and, and score them yourself. Um, and, and like I said, this is not for you to be able to like diagnose and say, see, like, like the score is seven, which means that like, they're potentially like going to die of a heart disease, <laughs> um, but more for you to be, I would say, be aware and say, wow, this child has gone through a lot. You know, there's a lot of risk for this child. How can I, as a foster parent, right. Um, help provide support um, right now where, again, like I said, the brain is very malleable. It can change. And how can I help support that? And in, in in when, the, when the brain develops and even shapes that, that child's personality um, into yeah. something that, you know, it's not yeah. going to be a personality disorders or whatnot. All right. My team has posted some links in the chat. Lindsay, would you mind adding those to the handouts tab of the class so that they're there? afterwards um so the ace score so the ace study used a simple scoring method to determine the extent of each study participants exposure to childhood trauma and again right each um category of an ace qualifies one point uh when the points are added up that's the a score and then so an A score of zero would mean that the individual reported no exposure. And then an A score of 10 would mean that the individual would report exposure to all categories of the trauma listed above. And so it's not, and, and again, it goes back to Renee, you asked, you know, is it weighted differently? It's really pretty simple. And that is why with this A study, there's a lot of encouragement, especially for um, for doctors, you know, office to, to be conducting these um, questionnaires. And even as I think about it, you know, and I talk to my friends who are teachers, you know, these are things that, that they can even use in the way how they help teach children how to, um, you know, to learn academically. And, and I mean, even socially in a classroom. For sure. Hey, I've never heard of this. This is interesting. Somebody said the group that did the study on the ACEs, did they also do the BCE, the Benevolent Childhood Experiences? Have you heard of those? I haven't heard of that. No, I haven't. And I haven't, but I think that would be interesting. Maybe that's another class. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And I think that ACEs, um, this is, has been, you know, it was in the nineties and it's highly used for educating, uh, you know, helping professionals with um, challenges of childhood trauma. And so I know that as, as a caseworker, we, you know, went through a lot of these trainings 
Um, and ACES is one that was brought up all the time for us. So this is what's interesting and also to me is what's worrisome. Um, ACEs tend to come in groups. So, you know, if you had a mother, and this is the one where I talked about in like 90% of the cases that I um, assess as a caseworker and even as a supervisor um, involve domestic violence, violence to the mother. And so if you had a mother that was physically abused that treated violently, um, you have the 82% chance that you're going to have two ACEs um, and then 64% to have three ACEs and 48 to have four ACEs. And so this was, you know, um, the correlation that I, you know, I just, to me, like I said, with the um, domestic violence within a family. Um, and so untreated ACEs events only exacerbate over time. And so I know that there was a question that was early on that talked about, you know, kids that have experienced these adversities and if they don't um, come into care, what, what does that look like? And, and this it potentially is like a roadmap, which is, you know, very um, sad and scary. And so you talk about like developmental delays in childhood, you know, poor verbal skills, memory challenges. You know, and, and, and as I'm saying these things as foster parents, I want you to, you know, kind of, I'm sure many of you are like, yeah, you know, I've seen this, uh, but excessive tempers, you know, they scream or cry excessively, regressive behaviors, trouble learning or focusing at school, uh, developing learning disabilities, verbally abusive. One of the biggest ones that I saw was the difficulty sleeping, self-suiting. Um, and being withdrawal. And if we're exposure, that is, you know, being removed from, from a caregiver. And then as you can see, as it impacts them in childhood, it go into adolescence. And then when you're looking at adolescence for delinquency, you know, skipping school, running away, staying past curfew, underage smoking, mental health is a big one that you see during adolescence. So low self-esteem, anxiety, Depression, mood disorder, one that I don't really like is the ADHD. Um, and even in childhood, you start seeing that. And I, as a clinician, always say um, a good therapist would be able to comb through the behavior and really identify it back to, you know, a traumatic period, a tra a, a, an event within their life, rather than just saying, oh, this child is, you know, diagnosed with ADHD. Um, Adolescents, you're looking at sexual activity, so engaging in promiscuous behaviors, engaging in sexual, you know, relationships, substance, alcohol use, marijuana, that's a big one, vaping, drinking, and then violence. Um, and often in adolescence, we see, you know, crimes against properties, right? Or even looking at like bullying, that, that piece of it in school. And then you, you look at how it impacts them into adulthood. Um, and so you're looking at psychiatric challenges, depression, PTSD, personality disorder. Um, and this is one where I, as you know, Renee was talking about, you know, you see kids come into care and then they turn into parents and then their kids come into care and it just, you see that cycle. And what I see is a lot of personality disorders within those parents. And so they get diagnosed with like borderline personality disorder 
dependent personality disorder. And really, again, a good clinician, a good psychologist will be able to really comb through that person's history. And really, a lot of it has to do with complex PTSD from childhood experiences, like dating all the way back from there. Um, but as they, you know, become adult, right, it becomes a right. part of their personality, and it well, changes and them. Like it says at the top of the slide, untreated, mm-hmm. right? So we're, I think we're just now kind of learning how to better, I guess, better treat some of these things. Um, I think this is a good point. Somebody says, it certainly seems that while mental health was taboo, but now moving into the open, now it feels like domestic violence is the current taboo. Is there any truth to that? It sounds like that's kind of what you were saying in that, how often you've seen that, Mindy. Absolutely. And I think that we domestic violence is and when you talk about domestic violence right it's it's a huge topic that i uh, i spend a lot of time in is that a lot of people don't talk about it and i think a big piece of it is you know and this is um my opinion but like a lot of the things that are out on the forefront are more related to supporting men and how can we you know more male driven agendas and so when we're talking about domestic violence and the thing with domestic violence is that it's it's, it's, it's emotional, right? So it's like emotional abuse. It's not like physical abuse where, where you hit someone and there's um, a mark and you can say, oh, look, that happened. And the other thing is that in domestic violence relationship, there's a power dynamic. And so there's a really hard time for a lot of individuals to be like, well, you know, it was simple, choose the husband or choose the kids. And it's so hard um, to understand that to to understand and then to articulate it right and then to also make it an agenda to talk about and something that like personally with me was I'm you know as a social worker I'm I'm a strong woman and my mom is also and my mom was um so I am Hmong and so in in a Hmong culture um a, a man is allowed to marry multiple wives so at one point my father was married to my mother and three other wives. And my mom's first husband um, was killed during the Vietnam War. And then my dad met my mom and just fell in love with her and wanted to marry her. And in a mom culture, it's, it's very shameful to be a single um, mother. And so she had three kids. And so my father's like, oh, you're great. Like, I want to marry you. <laughs> my mom's like, okay, yes. And this was during you know, mind you, the, the Vietnam War where, you know, there was war going on in a third world country. A lot of people were dying. My father was a general. So my mother married my father and, um, and had nine of us kids. And I could never understand why she stayed with him because he was very verbally and physically abusive. And we were exposed to that. Um, but my mom was also very strong will and that like, she took on a lot of the abuse. She didn't let it happen to us, the physical abuse, although we were exposed to a lot of the arguing, the psychological piece of it, and even him being abusive. But I, it was just two years ago when I sat down with my mom and it was for my birthday. And I asked her and I said, how come you, you never left dad, you know, like, like you're such a strong woman. And even I didn't understand. And my mom said, you know, when I, so in a mom culture too, when you have a child, um, that child is, belongs to the father's side. 
you know, not the mother. So when my father married my mother, my mom had to give up all her three kids and her youngest was like six months at that time. And so she said, you know, I never left your father because I regretted my entire life when I lost my three older kids. And I, you know, knew that if I left your father, I would have to leave all nine of you guys with your father. And I couldn't do that to myself. And so it really was eye opening to me about when you talk about domestic violence, you know, and you, and I didn't blame my mom, but I just couldn't understand it. Um, And so it's so complex. And so domestic violence, yeah, it is taboo. And it's so much easier to blame the victim. Right. Well, that is so interesting. Uh, It just adds another layer of how culture affects that as well. So interesting. Yes. Yes. And you think about like, you know, in black communities, right. And in Latino communities, um, you know, what it means to be a single black mother, what does it mean to be a single, you know, Latina, um, you know, raising kids alone, you know, as a white woman, you know, what are the, how shameful it is, right. In this country. And so that's a big piece about domestic violence. You're absolutely right. Is that mental health is coming to the forefront now because we have men that are, you know, driving this agenda too, but domestic violence, we don't have a lot of that. Any, any thoughts about kind of what I just shared or just about domestic violence and, and what we're seeing Yeah, Someone's mentioning good point that, um, it's a mistake to think that DV is fully gendered. Um, women sometimes get away with it because it's perceived as a quote unquote male issue or that the man spurred their behavior and that they're the real victim. Um, stats are male centric, but it's more hidden with women. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, and, 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 and in the, in the domestic violence, it, there are, you know, when I went to a lot with the families, there's a lot of men. And although there may not be the physical piece of it, there was a lot of emotional abuse within that. And there was also a lot of impact to kids. And then if you look at the social history of that male, you know, that man, you go back to, to childhood and you look at the, you know, ACEs questionnaire and you can, you know, I bet you, you can check off many of those. And so this, yeah, this is something, and I think a big piece of it is that, um, that we're able to do these studies now because we're able to look at the outcome, right? What does it look like in adulthood? And so I always encourage everyone like now we know, so let's, let's be progressive about it. Um, So these are just some stats. And so um, that I wanted to just share. So the A score and a prevalence of attempted suicide. So the numbers to the left are the percent attempted. And so if you have an A score zero, um, you know, the percentage of a suicide is like two at 2%. But if you have four or more, you're at 18% 18% about. Um, so that is about 12 times more prone to suicide. You look at, you know, a, a lifetime history of depression, you know, if you look at these, so men and women, you know, women tend to have more, um, ex- with more ACEs, um, higher percentage of depression, you know, four or more, you're looking at above 50%, you know, that is four and a half times more prone to depression. And so you kind of get to look at, okay, what is it, you know, what do these A score mean? This is what they mean when they become adults. Well, and I wonder on that one, because it's even 
more taboo for men to seek mental health care. So theirs may be just as high. They just aren't, aren't reported. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's a good point. So we look at, you know, substance abuse. So this is one where, you know, the different colors represent the number of ACEs. So that light green, you know, zero ACEs, that dark green that follows it, one, the score of one on an ACEs uh, questionnaire, number five, you know, five or more as your ACE score, you're looking at like, you know, 12% in substance abuse. And then, you know, and, and it kind of, when I looked at this, um, I separated by substance problem, right? Addicted to substances and then injected substances. And so it's like, again, um, the ACEs childhood is, um, you know, questionnaire, the study is, is we, we talk about it a lot because again, it scientifically has proven um, that yes, when you've experienced this in childhood, this is what it can look like into adulthood if nothing happens. Um, something that, you know, I wanted to bring this up is um, teen sexual behaviors. Um, so as you can see, teen pregnancy, right? If you look at an A score of four or higher, 40%. Um, and so these teen sexual behaviors include a range of activities from kissing and fondling to oral, anal, and vaginal sex. And even looking at, I mean, intercourse by age 15 with an A score four or higher. Um, so a person with an A score of seven or more um, has a triple, you know, lifetime risk of lung cancer and a three and a half time risk of heart disease. And so the higher the A score, the worse one's health. And if you look at it, heart disease is the number one cause of death in this country, followed by cancer. And then you look at a life expectancy of 20 years or less, you know, if they have a, a score of seven or higher. And so it ultimately it leads to, you know, a shorter life. Oh, interesting question. Somebody says, do nicotine and food have a seat at the addiction table? I would say they do. Yes. I agree. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because it plays in, if you think about it a lot, if you do a lot of research around addiction, it, it moves from one to another, right? Like you can try to quit this, but you move into something different. And then, and over a period of time, again, it develops mental health challenges. Um, so childhood trauma, it changes in a brain structure. 90% of a child's brain is, you know, development happens before the age of five. And then 10% of the brain development after age five. So if you look at it, there are many negative effects, childhood abuse and neglect on how the brain develops. Um, what are some of the potential effects? So a decrease of the corpus callosum, uh, callosum which is the primary function um, of you know, motor, sensory, sensory, cognitive performances, a decrease in the hippocampus, which is super important in learning and memory, less volume in a free, uh, prefrontal cortex, which 
affects behaviors, balancing emotions and perception. And so as you can see, if 90% if of our brain is developed before age five, what, what does that mean for our you know, prefrontal um, cortex as it develops later in life if we've experienced many of these um, ACEs? And then, you, you know, there's an overactivity in amygdala, which is like responsible for processing emotions and determining reactions um, to like potentially stressful or dangerous situation. So I always talk about the amygdala and it's like right there in the, oh, I can't point, in the middle of your brain, <laughs> um, down kind of by your stem is that it, um, it's like a smoke detector, right? And so we all have smoke detectors in our house and it lets us know like, oh, there's a, there, potentially there's a fire, right? Like do something about that. And in kids that have experienced um, those 10 categories of ACEs, I mean, imagine their little brain, constantly the smoke detector is on and that's how they have to live their life. And so that is where it really talks about how it, it becomes organic and really, you know, impacts and change and develop their DNA genetically. Um, and so you talk about the behaviors, emotions, social functions. And so childhood abuse, neglect, and trauma, again, it changes the brain and its chemical function. And so these potential effects can include, again, we talked about, right, being constantly on alert, you know, not being able to relax, being fearful most of the time. Again, it's that smoke detector is always on. Uh, finding social situations more challenging, learning deficits, not hitting developmental milestones, um, a tendency to depre uh, develop depression and anxiety. And so this is one where I, when I was a caseworker, um, that I really educated parents about, about how trauma impacts the brain. Um, because a lot of people, as, as when we're talking about child abuse and whatnot, you know, often it's like, oh, yes, it happened, you know, or like it happened to me and look at me, right? I turned out great or whatnot. And so when you're able to tie in um, adversities and children into how it impacts the brain, um, into how it impacts a person develop and become an adult, it, it's super important. Well, and we talk and learn so much in our classes about the different parts of the brain and where most kids from trauma hang out, which is in the fight or flight part of the mm -hmm. brain, you know, and how much a difference it makes when we are able to regulate ourselves before responding, when it's not to respond instead of reacting, which again, much easier said than done. But the more we practice it, the more the kiddo practices it and mm -hmm. the, the more he or she learns to step Absolutely. out of that brain a little bit. Yes. Yes. And I do a lot of trainings on um, parenting. And one of my biggest tool that I, I tell parents um, and I will share with you all is using the word we. Right. And so we don't hit we don't yell, we. And then when we say we, it really helps us as adults, as individuals to also reflect on ourselves, right? How do we want to model? How do we want to, like Renee say, respond rather than react? Oh, that's a good tip and an easy one mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to integrate there. Yeah, we, because then you start 
you have to do it too because it's we right it doesn't feel like it's so shaming on them something that they did yes and I'll tell you I always thought you know Renee has her seven-year-old Andy and I have my seven-year-old Cameron and I have always said we and sometimes you know one day he was always like he learned please so he thought if he said please you know he can always get what he wants and so I told him I said we don't you know we don't always get what we want when we say please so one day I was being lazy and I needed him to turn off the light and I was right back there and I was like Cameron can you please turn on the light and he says we don't always get what we want (laughs) and so (laughs) yes but I'm learning like okay it's we and so again it's responding rather than reacting and then it's not you 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 or I it's we you know a, a partnership And this is a interesting scan. And so again, right, you look at a three-year-old child and you look at the size of the brain, you know, and this is, you know, normal versus extreme neglect. So again, childhood trauma changes the brain structure. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so impacts, uh, ACEs impacts learning. So 51%, and this is something that I wanted to put in here because many of the children that are in care, you know, are in, are in school. And so 51% of children with four or more ACEs scores had learning and behavior challenges in school. So compare with only 3% of children with no ACEs score. Um, and so this is like the one where we see a lot of like I think, you know, this child has ADHD. This child cannot, you know, sit still in a room you know, cannot follow direction um, and, you know, can't, yeah. I mean, really you you talk about, and and many of these kids, um, like when I was an ongoing caseworker and so I actually was monitoring family, I want to say a very high percentage, 75 to 80% of the children that like I placed that were in grade school, they had a 504 plan or an IEP. And so I know that I had a lot of conversations with the foster parents, the guardian at Lightham and the school about, hey, how do we provide support to these children? Somebody says some these stats can get depressing, right? And how can we, we wanna help, which I love, but I feel like this is not something that we can quote unquote fix. First, we understand it. And then as the parent, we try and try and try again until, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that yet too, but we, we have to find what works for our particular child. Absolutely. And each kid, as you can tell, is different, right? Like there isn't a, this child came from an abusive home. So this is what you do. This child came from an neglectful home. This is what you do. There isn't. Each child is so different because the brain trauma impacts a person um, and so differently that you can't compare the two. A lot of the symptoms are alike, you know, but it impacts them differently and they respond differently to to different triggers and sensors. And so we will talk about it. It is depressing, but I promise you um, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm going to go through that with you all. Somebody said one kid at a time. Sometimes we just plant the seed. And I think that's so valid in foster care. It is rare that we get to see the fruition of the seeds we plant, but we just have to know that they're there and that they will make a big difference. 
Yes. Yes. And something that I talked to Renee about last night is as a formal, <laughs> former, um, as a former, you know, um, child protection, social caseworker and supervisor, I feel like I can speak more honestly about how to support foster parents just because there's so much red tape within the system itself. So yeah. we're going to go through that um, as the slides go through as what you can do to not only plant the seed with this child, but plant the seeds with the community around this nice. child so that nice. when this child isn't with you anymore, you know, you've planted seeds and all these um, community supports, you know, that can, can help that child flourish, even the parents. I will say, for example, in our case, we had two, two years of play therapy. And finally she said, we have made no progress. Like this is not, she was just honest with us. She was like, I just, and we switched from that to PCIT, which is parent-child interaction therapy, PCIT.org, if you guys are interested. And for us, that was a major step forward. But I have another friend who did PCIT and she said, no, it was terrible. It did, they, it did not work at all. So it really is just trying and trying and trying again. Yes. So considerations about the ACEs um, and trauma. So ACEs is prevalent, you know, common in the lives of children, very much so. Um, ACEs are strong predictors of health risk and disease from adolescence to adulthood. We saw that, the, the number, the stats. The findings of the ACE study is one of the largest and leading determinant of health and social well-being of this country. And trauma-informed care for children in foster care is essential. Um, so, oops. Ah, sorry. <laughs> so where do we go from here? So like I said, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And, and I want to praise and thank you foster parents. Um, I always, you know, have when I was a caseworker, because I may be working until midnight, placing a child, but because of you opening your doors, your hearts, I was able to you know, place that child in your home and go back home. And, and then I do go home, right? I do go home. I get to shut down a little bit while you as foster parents, you don't get to do that. This child remains in your care. And so I, I do want to give you lots of kudos and that you, you know, if you don't hear enough, thank you um, from others is that, you know, they think social work is a thankless, you know, profession. I think foster parents is a thankless profession. And so I want to thank you guys all so much for, like I said, being there. That's um, so nice. And it's true. Yeah. Sometimes we hear it. Sometimes we don't, I will say mm -hmm. my caseworker who was on the call this morning, who sits on our <laughs> board, thanked us every time she had a visit at our house. She would always say, thank you so much for fostering. And it just, it kind of just gives you that little bit of oomph sometimes to keep going. Yeah. I mean, to me, you have to have the biggest heart to do this because it's hard because it's not like we place a, a perfect child in your home, right? Like this is a child that has experienced so much trauma. And then we're like, here you go. You know, and so it is. Yeah. Thank you guys all so much. Um, so trauma is defined as an event or series of, uh, of events that involve fear or threat. So, you know, Renee talked about the fight or flight, that amygdala constantly on. Um, this is a quote from Herman. Um, so at the moment of trauma, the victim is rendered helpless by overwhelming force. 
Traumatic events overwhelm the ordinary systems of care that give people a sense of control, connection, and meaning. The severity of traumatic events cannot be measured on any single dimensions. So again, they're not the same, you know, you can't say A, you know, one plus two equals three. Um, and so simplistic efforts to quantify trauma ultimately lead to meaningless comparisons of horror. The, the salient characteristics of traumatic event is its power to inspire helplessness and terror. And so these kids, a lot of the kids that experience trauma, they're, they're little. So how are they going to fight, right? In an adult world and they don't. So what do they do? You know, you talk about fight and flight. They flight, they shut down, they dissociate. And that has a huge impact into shaping and forming them into adults. Trauma-informed care. So a strength-based framework that is grounded in an understanding of and responsiveness to, responsiveness to the impact of trauma that emphasizes physical, psychological, and emotional safety for both providers and survivors. And that creates opportunities for survivors to rebuild a sense of control and empowerment. And so this is a big one. Um, at the end, we're talking about a sense of control and empowerment. So you think about these children that come into care, they've had no control over their lives. They've had no power over their lives. I recall that there was a child that I had placed into care and he was three and he was placed with his aunt. He would always hoard food or he'll go into the trash can to get food and just, just eat it. And it was at, at such a young age, but he was, he just wanted a sense of control and empowerment by just hoarding. And so we worked with a behavioral analyst to really help us track those behaviors and how we can support him and his sense of control. When do you want to eat? You know, does your, you know, do you want to eat? Is your, is your tummy hungry? So relating it to physiological, um, you know, feelings in his body rather than like, I just need to eat, 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 because I don't know when I'm going to eat next. Well, and I think that choice makes a huge difference because you're right. They've gone so long without any control that it's, you know, do you want to have a piece of fruit or a yogurt? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Even just that little bit of control makes a huge difference. Yes. And I do some trainings on um, love and logic. And so I don't know if a lot of you parents are um, know a lot about love and logic, but I, that is one, um, something that I teach a lot to parents about um, choices with kids. And so, and, I, and I, I do it a lot with my child. So for example, especially, and it works really well with teenagers, I feel like too, you know, like my son, he, you know, a lot of kids, right? They just want to be on an electronics. And so I, I, I told my son, Cameron, I said, hey, look, you can watch TV for five minutes and then, or watch TV for 30 minutes and then go clean your room, or you can go clean your room now and you're get, you know, 45 minutes of watching TV. And so I give them a choice and both choices, they benefit me. Although, you know, I, I'm not controlling them and like, I need you to clean, I need, you know, Cameron, you need to clean your room right now, but I'm giving him a choice. And so a lot of kids that are in foster care, you have to give them the power back to make the decision to make a choice of what they want to do. And you can set, you know, what those choices are. So it's not, 
eat now or, or, you know, if you don't eat now, you can't go do this. Or if you don't do this, you're going to time out. But give them a choice. And so the good news, neuroscience has proven that a positive attachment figure can encourage new neural pathways. And so if we're looking at the scan of this brain, you can think about it as, you know, the opposite. If you had a child who was extremely neglected, you know, um, and if they learn to have positive attachment, positive caregivers in their lives, again, the brain is malleable, you, you can change. Oh, here it comes, guys. It's not a life sentence, <laughs> right? We can help. So components of trauma-informed care. Safety, so physical and emotional safety, that's number one. And that's one of the things that you as foster parents can provide. And so I think one of the foster mother has set up a peaceful home. Yes, they need that physical and emotional safety because they didn't have that. Um, attainment of self-regulation. So enhance the capacity to manage and regulate arousals. You know, so hyper, the hyper arousals like aggression, impulsive behaviors. And then hypoarousals, dissociation, depression, self-harm. And so as foster parents, we want to ensure that we have a physical and emotionally safe home. What does that mean, right? And so if you had a child who came from a home, age three, who was never really fed and they come into your home and because you, you know, as foster parents, you have to have, um, you know, a, a consistent schedule or whatnot. And this child is, you know, always wanting to eat. And so how can you physically and emotionally work with this child and say, hey, like we eat at eight, we have snacks at 10, we eat at noon, we have snacks at, you know, one and we have dinner. And how do you kind of work with that child individually and not be, you know, um, and meet that child's needs because of the home where that child came from. And so it, it's, it's not harmful, right, to have a consistent schedule because that's these kids, they need that. But at the same time, if they came from a home where they were never fed and so now they've learned that they, they want to hoard, they want to eat all the time, how do you emotionally meet them there? And really, that's the big piece is where do you meet this child there and how do you as a caregiver guide them back into, hey, like, you know, if we have consistency in our schedule, if we you know, eat this way, or this is the food that we eat, this, you know, this is how you can be physically safe. And so that's a big piece one, like I said, the, the physical and emotional safety. Um, and, and that will in turn help with self-regulation. Somebody says, and this is brilliant. I told you guys coming in the fall, we have a nutrition and trauma class coming. Christine, I wish I had known that you were a dietitian. I would have reached out to you. Um, she says, I'm a dietitian and a foster parent. I've found that initially it's important to allow the kiddos to eat when they want until they feel safe. And then we found that a routine slash schedule of food works better once they trust us. Absolutely. All this behavior at the beginning is because they don't feel safe. And I've seen foster parents have what they call a yes bowl on the kitchen table. And anything in that bowl is always yes, whether it's just pretzels, you know, Ritz crackers. Um, so they know that even though we're going to eat later, 
they can always have something out of the yes bowl. And I'll tell you, we, we have this struggle and our, our kiddo came to us at 28 days and he still fears starvation. Yeah. And that's telling, right, Renee, 28 days and he still fears it. And it's like, he was in my care. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it, it's very real. Um, absolutely right. And this is one where I said, like, when you, when you have a child that come into your home, again, it's great to be consistent, have routine, but also like you got to meet that child where they're at. And, and again, it really helps with the self-regulation. So then they can, you know, learn to regulate their, you know, appetite, you know, their emotions. And so components of trauma-informed care, so traumatic experiences integration, so remembrance and mourning of traumatic loss. So oftentimes, you know, um, it's okay to talk about their family, what happened to them, you know, if they talk to you about it. You know, a lot of validation. <laughs> um, that's what I would advise. Relational rapport. This is a huge one for me where I want to put like a big red star next to it. So create a genuine and supportive relationship that focuses on attachment, empathy, and a capacity for physical and emotional intimacy. This is huge. You know, a lot of these kids that are, so one thing about attachment is that, you know, you hear a lot about like, oh, this kid is not attached to this person or this kid is not attached to that person. No, every single child has an attachment. They have to, it's part of their survival to someone, that's how they survive. It's the type of attachment that, you know, when, when we get into the type of attachment that will let us learn or know about what's healthy, what's a healthy attachment and what is not a healthy attachment. And so a lot of these kids don't have attack, they, they're attached to their parents or their caregivers at the time, but it's not a healthy attachment. And so you as the foster parent, how can you um, build an attachment with this child that is healthy. And so that, again, is that genuine and supportive relationship with that child. Let them trust you that they're physically and emotionally safe with you. Um, and a positive- and That takes time. That takes time. Yes. That does not come. And a lot of kids honeymoon at first. Um, mm -hmm. So don't, we see that a lot where foster parents think it's something they're doing wrong or- they're not up for it. That, that's not true. It's just different. It just takes time. You're doing a great job. Absolutely. And it's, you know, and, and the thing with foster, you know, U.S. foster parents, right, is when we drop up a kid at your front door, um, we don't really know what's going to happen. You know, you don't know how long this child is going to be with you. I've had times when I've had a newborn that I placed because the mother said, I have no family, you know, um, and we remove that child and go into a foster home. And we think, oh, you know, this, there's nowhere else for this child to go, but we do a little bit of digging on our end and we find families and that child has to go, or we have a child, you know, I, <laughs> I recall this, I had um, some, you know, a group of siblings, there's three of them about like age five to seven. So five, six, seven. And they were from, um, they were Native Americans and so Indians in Utah. And they came to Colorado and we ended up, I actually called the tribe itself first. And I said, hey, look, like, you know, we're gonna remove these children. 
you know, these are, you know, registered tribe members of yours. Um, I'm just letting you know so that you can prepare to come take these kids, you know, because, you know, we don't want to place them here in Colorado, especially in Arapaho. We didn't have any Native American homes for these kids. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I, <laughs> um, I found a foster family and I said, hey, um, I have three kiddos and I want to place with you short term. You know, the tribe is going to come and get them anytime. And these kids ended up um, in a foster home for over a year because what I've learned <laughs> through working with a lot of these tribes is that there's some tribes that has a lot of money and there's some tribes that don't have any money at all. And so the tribe that we were working with didn't have any money. Um, and they had history with the, these three kids from Utah. However, they just, they couldn't, they, there was nowhere to place these kids. And if you also know, working with, um, being a foster parent to um, kids, um, Native American kids, it's, there's so much more requirements, right, than fostering a child who is not registered with a tribe. And so this foster yes. family went through the ringer. Um, yeah. And, and so that, yeah. And so you just, you think about that. Um, Can somebody from my team post the link to the Indian Child Welfare Act class that we have on demand? It's very helpful. Mm-hmm. And so um, this is for you, foster parents, is that we are not meant to do this alone. Absolutely not. Um, and Foster Source is a great, great nonprofit. Um, you know, I'm so glad that they exist to support you and that they have resources and, you know, you can have clinicians or, you know, professionals like me that have been, you know, in a field for a long time to, to help guide you through um, this process. And so components of trauma-informed care. So, um, whoop, I, okay. So advocate for community support. So this is where I was talking about planting those seeds, okay? So you're not only planting seeds within that child, but the ongoing caseworker, so important. And be a pest. I mean, be persistent. We often feel or hear from foster parents that they feel like they, sh they don't have a voice or they shouldn't bother or bug their caseworker or the caseworker supervisor. Mindy, you can tell us as a former caseworker. Yes. Can we email you and tell words we feel better about what services the child has? Absolutely. You have a voice. Use it. And like Renee say, bother them. One, one of my biggest thing I want you to take away from this is that when you're emailing your ongoing caseworker, right? And you're saying, my foster child needs X, Y, and Z. You're not emailing her because you want to be, you know, you want to take an abundance of resources or you want an abundance of money. <laughs> you know, you want support and services for this child from, the, from a place of, of love, right? From your heart. So yes, email. And I will tell you, Put the caseworker, you know, email address and CC the supervisor and the guardian alitem. And if there's in some counties, they have um, a separate foster care caseworker and an ongoing caseworker. And then you if you're a foster parent through like a private agency, um, like, you know, I think Catholic Charities or there's a few other ones. It's been a couple of years, but like a CPA, a CPA. There you go. Yeah. CPA. Every email that you send send it to all of them 
<laughs> send it to all of them because the thing with it is that so for example i'm gonna tell you i was an ongoing caseworker we are so busy putting out fires and it is not fair that we're constantly just focusing on those families right putting out fires while we have other families you know with kids like like your family with a kiddo that may need an evaluation done right um to address something email everyone because if the ongoing caseworker doesn't look at the email and the gal sees it or the cpa caseworker or the foster care or the supervisor they're going to talk about it and they're going to say like Hey, ongoing caseworker, did you see that, you know, foster mom emailed this and said this? Um, and so I, I would say, be that person that CCs everyone. <laughs> Do it. Don't, don't be afraid. I mean, that's what um, I did. You're not yeah. tattling. You're advocating. We've covered this before in different trainings because there's always this kind of hesitation to get the supervisor involved. And you've been a supervisor as well, Mindy, mm -hmm. but some things, and we've heard this from caseworkers over and over. It is okay. They do not see it as you going behind their back. You, they do not see it as you going over their head. They are happy to have as many people as possible have eyes on what the issue is. And yeah. So, and if you have, you know, cause sometimes they're, um, CASAs, support appointed special advocates. They were, okay, I'm going to be honest. As a caseworker, I wasn't the biggest fan. You know why? Because they advocated and they made it happen for the child. Because we had ongoing caseworkers. Yeah, we, it's a good thing. Like I said, that's why I'm saying it now, you know, because I'm not a caseworker. <laughs> it made a lot more work or what? It's because they're volunteer and they have, a, they only have one to two kiddos. Yeah, they so we have with. a lot of time to put. Yes. Yeah. That's well, ongoing caseworkers, we have like 15 to 20 cases, right? And then you talk about kids, like two kids per, you know, case, that's 30 kids. And then, you know, same thing with foster care caseworkers. They actually have a larger work uh, caseload. GALs, I'm going to tell you, they have a huge caseload. So if you have a CASA or if you don't, advocate for one. Right when that child comes, talk to the GAL and say, hey, is there a CASA available? Because that CASA, most of the CASAs that I've ever, I've ever met with, they, they're the eyes and ears of the judge. The judge loves them. And so um, I didn't put the CASA on here, but like I said, when I was a caseworker, it was kind of like, because they, they often were, they only had one or two kids. And so they were able to see that kid more often. They were able to, add, to help that, the foster family advocate for needs for, you know, and services and resources for that kid. For sure. Um, the CASA is a great ally for the foster parents. Yes, the CASA uh, yep. actually has a voice in court and we don't. Yep. yep, they do. And that's why I say they're the eyes and ears to the judge and the judge really listens to them. Um, and again, they have, they only have, you know, one or two kids that they, they um, see. And so they have the time to really learn to very listen to you as a foster parent to really help you. Um, so like I said, I would CC everyone and, and let your ongoing caseworker know and just say, Hey, you know, like, like what Renee say, oftentimes, you know, you don't want to tattle or you don't want to be like, Oh, I'm CCing your supervisor, but just let them know and just say, be understanding and say, I know, like, I thank you for being the ongoing caseworker. Thank you for being here. I know you're really busy. There's a lot of kids and, you know, I want us to all be on the same page because, you know, there's family team meetings, family engagement meetings, different counties call them different things, but they come together. And the best thing is to 
um, have everyone on the same page. And so, like I said, if a child needs an evaluation, yeah. but the ongoing caseworker is not making it happen just because he or she may be busy, that supervisor will. And it's a great, like Renee said, I was a supervisor. So to me, if I see that email, I'm going to address it during supervision. Yeah. Um, not to say you're in trouble, caseworker, but to say, hey, you know, foster mom emailed about this evaluation. Yeah. Oh, did just, I do something? Okay. What's the, no, just what's the follow-up, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Somebody said, we've experienced this a lot lately and we're blown away by how much is actually available out there when you ask. From our little one's pediatrician, can't find a specific formula we need. We can see about getting it shipped through Medicaid. We can't get a call back from child find. We can just get it going as a referral. We need additional support. Foster Source can connect you with the therapist. She says, you thank us, but it takes a team. And that's exactly Mm -hmm. right. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just be that advocate. There are services. Yes. And you are going, you're that child's parent. You're that child's caregiver. You know, Um, you know more about that child at that moment than anyone else would know what that child's need is. Um, guardian ad items, make relationship, whatever it is with your guardian ad item. I've always, as a caseworker and supervisor, had great relationships with the guardian ad item just because um, the guardian ad item has a huge voice within, um, within the courtroom. And so the guardian ad item, sitting down with him or her, talking to him or her about what the child's needs are, you know, I think guardian ad litem sees kids in a home. I think once every three months they're required, but then yeah. some of them see more often. Well, and we hear a lot. Somebody just put in the chat. We never hear from our GAO. And we, we oh. heard that when we did, if you haven't watched our human services panel with Adams County, go back and watch it. Can somebody link that in the chat for us? It's super, super helpful. Or was it, it might be a judicial panel, whichever one has the GAL, but um yeah, the, the guardian ad litem, that is the child's attorney, mm-hmm. right? And especially if you have a nonverbal child, you're going to be the source of information for, for him or her. So it, the, they are definitely an ally in the case. Yes, they're the biggest one. I will tell you, like when you're talking about services for this child, you as a caseworker are represented, me as a caseworker, you know, I'm represented by the county attorney, right? The, the parents are represented by respondent attorneys. This child is represented by the guardian ad litem. So if you're not having communication with the guardian ad litem, they are mandatory to, I wanna say it's like once every three months. I know it's not once a month. Um, and, and a lot of guardian ad litems I'm seeing, they have like a social worker that they have hired that, do, that does the home visit for them. And so I would say the minute a child is placed in your home, schedule, find out who the guardian ad litem is. You should, you should be able to, um, and schedule a home visit with that guardian ad litem. Sometimes guardian ad litems, you know, we try, when I was a caseworker, we try to schedule everyone there at the same time, right? Foster care caseworker, ongoing caseworker. Yeah. And that guardian ad litem. then you've got everybody at once, mm-hmm. you know, yep. and you only have to clean up once. Yeah. So try <laughs> to get that guardian ad litem to that first, first, you know, um, home visit that the three of them can get and really learn about this child and advocate for services. Mindy, what would you say for this? And Maria, since I know you're in here, maybe you want to put something in the chat if you have an idea for this too. What is your advice if your GAL and your caseworker do not get along and are not on the same page? She says it makes communication for us difficult. 
Sorry, who who doesn't get along? The GAO and the caseworker are not on the same page as far as where the case should go. So I, I to me, as the foster parent, it is, that's an ongoing caseworker issue and a GAL issue, and they're not focusing on this child, right? Like, and so I would try to say, hey, look, like, let's put aside, like, what your, what you each think is best for this child. And can we come together and talk about what's best for this child together rather than, and like I said, I've, it's difficult for me because I've always, to me, uh, as a caseworker, as a social worker, um, I am all about partnerships. So I need to partner with this GAL. I need to partner with respondent parent attorneys. I need to partner with foster parents because it's about this child's need, not about, you know, what's easiest for the ongoing or worker or for the guardian or litem. And so I think a big piece of it is calling it out as the foster parent. And then, you know, making it about this child. So I would say something along the lines of like, and the other thing is that each county, they have to have, like I said, they call it like family engagement meetings in Jefferson County, family team meetings in Adams. It's called a links meeting in Arapahoe. <laughs> and then I think, and I forget what they call it in Broomfield. Yeah, we're usually not invited to those, but sometimes we are. And they happen. They, they're yeah. required to happen. I think it's like once every two or three months, they have to happen. So even if you don't know about it um, and you're not invited to it, ask to be invited to it. And what and the way how you want to advocate, and this is me teaching you some language, is saying, I want to tell you what's going on with this child so that, you know, you all as professionals can make, you know, some dis- help make some decisions that are best for this child. You know, instead of, I want to come in as a foster parent because I know X, Y, and Z. But turning it back to this is, you know, I would love to come in and give an update on how the child's some doing. some information. I like yep. that. Just I like keep, that. Just, just, just say, I, you know, I, I, you know, I want to support, you know, this child returning home if that's the goal. If the goal is the child to, you know, uh, return a family or return or, you know, be adopted or whatnot. Can I attend that meeting to provide services? Uh, not services, an update on a child. So I that think, you. Sorry, I was going to say, I think that, like you said before, whenever you're emailing an update, email the entire team. Email the entire team. Don't just be like, oh, I have to tell the caseworker that. Include the GAL on that. So everybody's got the most information possible. Yeah. And honestly, to, as a foster parent, the guardian ad litem is going to be the person who will advocate for the voice of that child. The caseworker, the ongoing caseworker will too, but in terms of, if I'm thinking about it sitting in a courtroom, you know, the, the department, right? Uh, uh, they make recommendations and then you have the GAL who makes recommendations for the child. So I would say, you know, ha- have a conversation with the GAL and ongoing and kind of figure out what it is. And if you can't like ask, CC the supervisor. Um, I would call it out. I'll be honest. If I was a For foster sure. parent and there was conflict, yeah. I would call that out right yeah, when I see that's it. That's not our yep. job. To yep. have it to is not. Get yeah, it's not your together. job. Yep. You're not going to mediate them. You know, there are some foster parents. I mean, in a moment, you know, you may say that, but I, I would call them out. I would say this is a disruption 
to this child if you two cannot be on the same page, you know, or I can't even work with you and I'm the foster parent here. You know, how, how are we going to ensure that, um, you know, we're, we're advocating or recommending, you know, what's best for this child if you two are in such conflict? Call them out. Yeah. Somebody says, add your cert worker to those emails. And I completely agree. Mm -hmm. I always included the entire team. And before we move on here, somebody says, I've experienced that too. Why would they not want us to be in the meeting? And honestly, it's, it's nothing personal. It's, it's honestly just that we are not um, considered a part of the team like we should mm-hmm. be. So it's kind of an oversight and we're, we're kind of an afterthought, unfortunately. Um, that is changing and we can we need to continue to work so that we, we aren't an oversight considering we're the ones who are parenting them 24 um, seven. But I know I'm preaching to the converted on, on that, but that that's why it is. It's not because they don't think you know what you're doing or it, they, it it's really is an oversight. So as somebody said earlier, I invite myself. Absolutely. When you're, when you're emailing the whole team, when is the next court date? When is the next family team meeting? Just ask and keep asking. Yeah. And one of the big things why, and now that I'm thinking about it, I've been out for two years, <laughs> is that family team meetings, those are for the parents. So I recall they're for the parents and update for the for the team and so that's why i say when you go into those when you ask to participate say hey i would love to give an update um because the fear uh, or the concern i'm you know i'm thinking from a parent perspective is that this foster parent just want to take my kid right this foster parent just want my kid and they want to learn you know and know things about my case so that they can use against me or whatnot like those are the fears that these parents are having and so that's it goes back to also, and Renee and I had a conversation about this, is having a healthy relationship with the bio parents. Yes. And it doesn't have to be a good relationship yes. or like your friends, no, but a mutually understanding, kind and respectful relationship. And that is improving as well. We're working with champs in several counties to, first of all, introduce that relationship much earlier in the case, Mm -hmm. you know, in theory, that icebreaker is supposed to be right away and it rarely is, but there's a, there's a focus to kind of make that happen earlier again and kind of break down that wall that we feel Mm -hmm. like is put between, between us and the bio parents. Yeah. And then I think the other thing, I've been out of the game for a little bit, but there's the ARD um, hearings. Foster parents are invited to that, right, Renee? When they do the, mm-hmm. or Maria. Not that I know of. I'm trying to think of my ongoing days. And yeah, we invited foster parents and kids to attend. And that's when the state comes in to audit the case. Okay. It happens. Oh, it only happens for kids that are out of home. Well, yeah, because these kids are out of home placement. Somebody so says, yes, I'm invited to the ARD. Yes. So it okay. just depends. Yeah. So you should be, the ARD worker should be emailing you to attend those ARD hearings. And those hearings should be the ongoing caseworker, the foster parent, the child of the child wants to speak, and then GAL. And so the ARD caseworker, the ARD, they're not caseworker, they're the auditors, right? They audit the case to ensure that the ongoing caseworker is in compliance with yeah. state and federal standard. That's a perfect person for you as foster parents to ask for help from, because if, if ARD tells me as the ongoing caseworker or supervisor, hey, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that for the treatment plan? Me as an ongoing caseworker, I have to answer to that. 
and you can um, yes. and so they're audited. So Maria saying every six months is the, okay, the yeah. review. And yes, they do invite the foster parent as a follow-up to before someone said, you know, again, being the afterthought is hurtful to the foster parents. We are one of the professionals with the child all day, every day. And absolutely you are correct. And it is changing. We are just fighting, crawling our way up to the, to just get a seat at the table is all we're asking for. And it is slowly working. Yes. Yeah. And you, and, and continue to continue to advocate, you know, um, because it, it is so true. Like I said, I, as a caseworker, I get to go home. You know, I come see you and the child in your home for an hour to two and I go home. And then I have all these other kids to go see. You know this child best. This child is in your care 24-7. So um, definitely advocate. And I think a, a good language to use is to say, hey, I would love to attend an FTM to provide an update on that child. Um, and as you provide updates, the thing with it is, and like I said, from my recollection, the parent gives permission, can give permission for people to attend. And so if you have that healthy relationship with your, with the bio parent, um, and you build that, I've seen bio parents inviting foster parents to those family team meetings. So you can kind of build that and, and develop that relationship. And then as the county sees it, it's like, wow, we're all, I mean, at the end of the day, right, for, for Christ's sake, it's for this child, you know, like that's what we Absolutely. want. Absolutely. The best thing for this child. And so, yeah, I would say it starts with advocating, you know, using the right language to say, I want to, I want to help. I want to update and building that relationship with the bio parent. Um, parents, uh, caregivers, um, nonprofit agencies. So, so foster source, I've been, like I said, out of the game for a little bit. And so I don't know a lot of other um, agencies, but I know that there's a lot of child placement agencies out there um, that can provide resources and that can help you. Um, for sure. Families Together, Colorado State mm -hmm. Foster Parent Association, uh, Fostering Great Ideas, um, lots of other helpful resources for sure. And then you know, there's the Ombudsman's Office, the Child Protection Ombudsman's Office in, in Denver. If you, like for, like I keep thinking about, like I've never experienced it, but if you honestly have a caseworker and a GAL who don't get along and, and you know, you're, you're really worried for that child um, about what the outcome may look like, you can call the Ombudsman's Office and seek support there, you know, and, and say, hey, what, yes. what, what kind of services are for me? You know, like, I'm the foster parent here. I have this child here. You yes. know, I'm getting so the two ombudsman oversees the counties, all of mm -hmm. them. Yes. Um, and we are hosting the ombudsman who is currently a woman. So the ombudswoman, um, May 15th, if somebody could link directly to that class in the chat, that would be mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah. And I would say attend that training if you have it and ask him your really hard questions because overall they oversee all the counties and they investigate and look into any matters that are, you know, very concerning. So they investigate the counties if there are concerns. While the ARD administrative review division, they just audit. Um, mental health professionals, clinicians, psychologists, psychiatrists. Oh, we skipped pediatrician, but your doctor, <laughs> um, your doctor's office, um, ask them, the best, like, I will tell you, as foster parents, if you show up to me as a caseworker and say, hey, I saw Dr. Smith and Dr. Smith, and I talked about, you know, little Johnny's behaviors and 
Dr. Smith recommended blah, blah, blah. And here's the recommendation for me. When I have that piece of paper as an ongoing caseworker, and I will also not only share with the caseworker, I'll share it with the GAL and everyone and be like, hey, they're advocating for this. You know, especially when things can be, um, you know, we as the county, we try to provide resources, you know, financial fundings, but there are times when like that's not enough because like this child may need to go to therapy five days a week or whatnot, you know? And so if you have a recommendation or talk to that pediatrician, the doctor and get some recommendation, put it on a paper um, and have, and again, use them to advocate for you um, and getting services or resources for that child. And so the pediatrician, like I said, is a great community support for you um, and in you know, conjunction with the clinician, the psychologist, psychiatrist, uh, teacher. I know that there's a lot of local churches that provide a lot of community support um, to foster parents as well. Um, and so those, these are some of the things, like I said, the, the people that you can plant seeds with in um, to help change um, the outcome, right, for this child in your care. Um, how can foster parents provide trauma-informed care? So educate yourself about, you know, being trauma-informed. Engage with the county caseworker and a child's family in planning. That's a huge one, you know, we were talking about. Attend trainings on trauma, trauma-informed care. Create a safe physical and emotional environment. Prevent secondary traumatic stress. Um, and this is for you as foster parents, right? Take care of yourself. Make sure that you're always refilling your, your, uh, your cup, you know? Don't just give, 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 because you can't, even myself, you know, as a social um, worker, you know, I, I am no good to anyone if I don't take care of myself. Uh, build a trauma-informed home, advocate for trauma screens, and see trauma-specific treatments. Does anyone want to add to this? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a great list. Somebody had said, when your foster child asks you when the state will be out of his life, that's the heartbreaking yeah. question, right? Because a lot of times we don't even know, do we? No, the, the last person I know. <laughs> um, yeah. And those are things that it, it's super important to be able to have the right um, the right language to say, like the trauma-informed language to speak to a child about that. And so, for example, I remember in my early days as a caseworker, you know, when um, talking about kids, about why they were removed from, from home, it was so difficult. And, and one day I was talking to a, th a, a therapist who treats a lot of kids that were in care, and she was telling me how she talked about it, you know, and it's, you know, it was that, you know, rules, right? Kids know a lot about rules. If you break a rule, you know, there's a consequence. And so, and that you get help. And so I, I've always said, you know, like mom and dad, they love you very much and they, they need to get some help and I'm going to help them, you know, and once they get some help, you know, we can see what we can do to help you to see them, but not making promises, but having conversations with them yeah. that are appropriate. That's good. Good language. Mm -hmm. Somebody yeah. says, I find our family and friends don't always understand the trauma kids go through and also have to be educated on things to say slash not say to these children. And oh my gosh, absolutely. I mean, in our own 
family, the school. Um, it's it's really hard, be, you know, because what does it do? It turns around and reflects back on us. It's a parenting issue. It's not, it's drama. Um, but yeah, you are right. That That is a lifelong struggle to, to educate those around us. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really, you know, and, and again, I think you go through, even speaking with adults, like family members, like a, a grandparent, you know, like we talk to our son, you know, our foster child this way. We, you know, we don't tell him, hey, you are the foster kid. So you, you know, like you're, you know, we're doing family pictures, right? That's a huge one that I see a lot in family pictures. Um, you know, we don't say, oh, you know, you're not in here, but you know, how do we talk to this child and say, you know, we're going to do some, you know, with you and some with us and be, and you know, this is what it means. And so having the ability to have the, those trauma-informed language when you're talking to these kids and also, again, using that word we when you're talking to your family or your friends or your neighbors or the school, the teachers, um, so that there's not that, you know, stigma of like, oh, that, that kid is, you know, in foster care. Yeah. We always, when we had family pictures planned, mm-hmm. when we had kids in care, we always had the kids in the pictures. That was our family mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. Um, and we checked it with the caseworker and it was okay. And that just felt better to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even little things like that, like I said, you know, when you're talking about trauma informed care is being aware of those little things and, and because it can have a trigger on that child, right? Especially if you're building a good attachment to that child and then, you know, Thanksgiving shows up, right? And you have 10 other family members who are perhaps taking pictures, you know, and how do you um, communicate to those 10 family members? Like, this is our family right now. You know, um, this child is our family, will be in our family picture. Um, And so again, having, being, being aware of what's going on and, and how to be protective of this child. Yeah, Maria is mentioning uh, TBRI, which is so important. Um, it's trust-based relational intervention training. It's a family-based intervention. The state uh, offers this as, as well as Raise the Future. Raise the Future used to be called the Adoption Exchange. Um, it's raisethefuture.org. Um, we have wanted to host TBRI many, many times, but it's a long, it's a two or three day class. It's a long, long class. And so we, because when we're in person, we always do childcare. We have never done TBRI, but agreed, uh, Google TBRI and your city and you'll, you'll find a place to take it. So, so helpful. So let's talk about trauma screening assessment referral for services. So. Trauma-informed care redirects attention from treating the symptoms, so those behavior challenges that we see, to treating the underlying causes and context of trauma. Uh, so trauma screening, it, it's administered to assess a child's trauma history and symptoms. Then you have the trauma assessment, which is completed if a child has a history of trauma and currently is exhibiting trauma symptoms, referral for trauma, mental health assessment, and then you have that psychological evaluation. So administered to assess a child's trauma history and symptoms. So more than likely a child that comes into care will have trauma history and symptoms. And so you're looking at that trauma assessment um, where you wanna get this child assessed, right? Because you can't receive services if the child is not assessed and there's no recommendations. And so um, 
the trauma screen, you can ask, you know, advocate through the county or the pediatrician's office. And then for the trauma assessment, look for clinicians who can provide a trauma assessment. And so COLLECT, I put in here, they're uh, a system of care for children and youth with behavioral health challenges and their families, uh, children's hospital, and then psychological evaluations can be done over at Children's Hospital, the Kent Center. One of the biggest thing that I want to, you know, you foster parents to take home is that when you are finding a clinician, a psychologist or whatnot, a professional to help assess the child, make sure they have experience in working with children um, with trauma, specifically if, you know, children who are in care. There are many, many of us who have experience working with children in a foster care system and understand what that looks like and what are appropriate and um, needs of these kids that, that make sense. And so like often you don't want to just find someone and say, oh, you offer this assessment, I'm gonna come to you. And that person may be a clinician in that field for 10 years, but if they have no experience working with kids, um, specifically you know, in care, it's gonna be the recommendations that they provide may not be the best. Um, Absolutely. Particularly and, and, like yeah. your, your local pediatrician just yeah. may not have that much, that much experience. Mm-hmm. Um, someone's asked, is there a minimum age, Mindy, for taking a kiddo for a trauma screen or an assessment? No, there isn't. Because what we, like I said, there isn't, you can look at the, the family's social history and score that and, and know that this kid came from a home, you know, with that experience X, Y, and Z. And so there isn't, um, and you want to upfront. The other thing that I found very helpful is that for younger kids, and you talked about this play therapy that, you know, Renee, you went through for two years, not every modality works and a good clinician will know that. And a good clinician will refer you out. Okay. Uh, A bad one will continue to work with you (laughs) and there's no outcome. So you as a foster parent, like advocate, speak about it. One of the best thing that I found in my experience as a caseworker was that um, I like to, um, I, I worked with a behavioral, um, what is it? It's like a BCBA. I forget. What is the acronym, Renee? Do you know? No. <laughs> I worked with a really good one. Let me see. I'm going to Google it right now. A behavioral well, analyst doing... certification board. <laughs> so, okay. Um, and so what I've learned, that kiddo that I was talking about that was hoarding at age three, the food, it was best for him not to work with a mental health therapist. It was best for him to work with a behavioral analyst to really, um, because at, at such a young age, right? Like how much can you do play therapy? you know, at at such a young age, but to look at the behaviors of that child, how are they exhibiting it? And so I would say, don't limit yourself to just like mental health therapists, behavior analysts are, are are different helping professions that are so helpful, especially for those young kids. Um, I I would say just like for the psych eval, we called to get a psych eval at Children's and they said, well, it's like a two-year wait list, right? So I said, all right, just put us on the list. Less than six months later, they called and said, we don't have an opening for that. 
but we do have an opening for PCIT. Would you like to try it? And that's how we got into PCIT. So even if you call somewhere and they claim they have a long list, just get on the list because there are other services that might come open that will be helpful. And what, and what is helpful for uh, foster parents is that, and this is where I say it's a good, it's good to have a good relationship with your GAL or your CASA because sometimes you can get the court to order to the court to order the county to pay for a psych eval where you're not on this waiting list at Children's for a year. The county, you know, there for are- like a private one instead yes. of Medicaid coverage? Okay. Yep. The county has funding for that. I'm going to tell you that. They're not going to tell you. Um, they're going to try to, you know, utilize Medicaid, um, you know, resources such as that before they, you know, pay for services. But if you get, if like I said, if you- are able to have a good relationship with the GAL, the CASA, and have good reasons for why that child needs a psych eval right now, rather than a year from now, the court can order it. And once the court orders it for the county, they have to pay for it. Awesome. All right, we're about 10 minutes out, Mindy. Where are we in your presentation? We are almost done. So, oh, two more slides. So trauma-informed evidence-based treatments. Uh, there's child-parent psychotherapy, child-child interactional therapy that Renee talked about, combined parent-child cognitive behavioral therapy. So these are all, and it talks about what the age range. So with that parent, you know, the foster uh, parent that asked about the younger age. And so this is like, again, very specific treatment modalities that treat, uh, that are trauma-informed evidence-based treatment. Um, and so this is good to have with you so that when you're talking when you're looking for clinicians, ask them these questions. Just don't go to the first one that takes Medicaid that, that has openings. Ask them, what is your background in? You know, what, what is your modality? You know, what is your treatment background? Where, you know, um, how do you work with these kids? You know, um, so ask them, like interview them. And my, my suggestion is that don't, I would say schedule two or three um, clinicians, you know, therapists or psychologists and interview them and see which one is the best fit for your for the foster child. And this um, training is in the handouts tab of the classroom. In case you're like feverishly writing to write all of this down, you're gonna be able to access this handout, this whole PowerPoint, um, even after you're finished with the class, just FYI. I would add EMDR to that personally, mm -hmm. to that list. Yeah, and EMDR is, the thing with EMDR is you want to make sure you have a clinician who is very skilled in it and also one that can assess when a person is ready because EMDR, there's been some research to show that um, it, it really it opens a floodgate. Um, oh, and if yes. the person is not yes. ready and if the person is not ready to um, really process that and if you don't have a good clinician. A trusted, yes, yes, you have to trust the clinician. Yeah. It's very vulnerable, mm -hmm. but it can be life-changing. Yeah, I, I did EMDR as a foster parent to help mm. um, me process the secondary trauma of foster parenting. And it helped so much, but it also dug a bunch of stuff up. <laughs> yeah, it does. It is, yeah, it, it, it's very, it goes very deeply rooted. So 
persons that engage in EMDR really, I mean, again, are in a place of, okay, I can write, like really open this floodgate and address all of this. And a good clinician who can help you close it again until the next session. <laughs> um, so these are books that I wanna recommend um, for you all as foster parents. The Body Keeps the Score. This is a really, really good one to talk about how trigger uh, trauma impacts the body, okay? And how um, it shows up in life. Moving Beyond Trauma. I haven't read that book yet. Childhood Disrupted. Trauma Stewardship. This is the one I was talking to Renee about right before this training. I encourage every single foster parent to read Trauma Stewardship. When you read this book, it is going to be like it was written for you. And I was telling Renee that mine is my personal diary about myself as a social worker. Um, and, and I would never let anyone read that book because it, you can't read it without writing in it. Um, it's not a book to read and say, okay, it's a book that really helps you process as you're reading it. And so Trauma Stewardship uh, the Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog is also a really great book. And then Teens Who Hurt, if you're a foster parent for um, the older kids, and Fostering Resilient Learners. And so these are books that I would recommend um, when we're talking about understanding childhood traumas and trauma-informed care. Awesome. I'm going to be buying that trauma stewardship one, and I, I almost feel like we should do a book club, foster parent book club of that. But these are all, the body keeps the score is kind of textbookish. Would you agree? It's very like science textbook. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, that's the, that's the crown jewel of, of what happens with trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I find trauma stewardship. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's easy to read. And like I said, it, it reads like, like a personal diary. Like it's talking about your life and it really makes you reflect about how, you can, and it's really about how you can be a steward to trauma, right? Because you are, as a foster parent, you're a steward to these children's trauma. And how do you be a good steward? So that is all I have. Um, I appreciate you all being here. Like I said, it's been, um, it's been a, about two years since I've been out of child protection, but this is one where, um, you know, the field of child protection is where I consider myself an expert in, um, just having done work from intake all the way out to adoption within the field for almost 10 years, working, you know, as a caseworker for, you know, about eight, nine years to a supervisor, just, just knowing the system inside and out and also working in so many different counties. And so, and, and seeing, like I said, I've seen the cycle of uh, childhood trauma, the cycle of just families going in and out of child protection. Um, I, again, you can find me, um, I'll have my website on there. Like I said, I am more than happy right now because I'm so busy. Um, it, a lot of people come to me asking me questions about the child uh, protection system that I'll be more than happy to um, help answer. Like if you have questions, if you're having challenges with a specific case or whatnot, and you want to reach out to Renee, you know, and Renee can reach out to me, I'll be more than happy to consult um, and, you know, and help you kind of navigate what those challenges are. Um, yeah, so that's, that's 
all I have. <laughs> yeah, that I've, you know, I've known what ACEs are and ACEs scores for many years, but this was a really good deep dive. 